Section fifty four of Montcalm and Wolfe by Francis Parkman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty four, seventeen fifty eight, seventeen fifty nine. Wolfe. Captain John Knox of the forty third regiment had spent the winter in garrison at Fort Cumberland on the hill of Beauséjour. For nearly two years he and his comrades had been exiles amid the wilds of Nova Scotia, and the monotonous inaction was becoming insupportable. The great marsh of Tantamar on the one side, and that of the Missaguash on the other, two vast flat tracts of glaring snow, bounded by dark hills of spruce and fir, were hateful to their sight. Shooting, fishing, or skating were a dangerous relief, for the neighborhood was infested by vermin, as they called the Acadians and their Micmac allies. In January, four soldiers and a ranger were waylaid not far from the fort, disabled by bullets, and then scalped alive. They were found the next morning on the snow, contorted in the agonies of death, and frozen like marble statues. St. Patrick's Day brought more cheerful excitements. The Irish officers of the garrisons gave their comrades a feast, having laid in during the autumn a stock of frozen provisions that the festival of their saint might be duly honoured. All was hilarity at Fort Cumberland, where it is recorded that punch to the value of twelve pounds sterling, with a corresponding supply of wine and beer, was consumed on this joyous occasion. About the middle of April, a schooner came up the bay, bringing letters that filled men and officers with delight. The regiment was ordered to hold itself ready to embark for Louisbourg and join an expedition to the St. Lawrence, under command of Major General Wolfe. All that afternoon the soldiers were shouting and cheering in their barracks, and when they mustered for the evening roll-call there was another burst of huzzas. They waited in expectancy nearly three weeks and then the transports which were to carry them arrived, bringing the provincials who had been hastily raised in New England to take their place. These Knox describes as a mean-looking set of fellows, of all ages and sizes, and without any kind of discipline, adding that their officers are sober, modest men, who, though of confined ideas, talk very clearly and sensibly, and make a decent appearance in blue, faced with scarlet, though the privates have no uniform at all. At last the 43rd set sail, the cannon of the fort saluting them, and the soldiers cheering lustily, overjoyed to escape from their long imprisonment. A gale soon began. The transports became separated. Knox's vessel sheltered herself for a time in Passamaquoddy Bay. 
then passed the Grand Minan, and steered southward and eastward along the coast of Nova Scotia. A calm followed the gale, and they moved so slowly that Knox beguiled the time by fishing over the stern, and caught a halibut so large that he was forced to call for help to pull it in. Then they steered northeastward, now lost in fogs, and now tossed mercilessly on these boisterous waves, till on the 24th of May they saw a rocky and surf-lashed shore, with a forest of masts rising to all appearance out of it. It was the British fleet in the land-locked harbour of Louisbourg. On the left, as they sailed through the narrow passage, lay the town, scarred with shot and shell, the red cross floating over its battered ramparts, and around, in a wide semicircle, rose the bristling back of rugged hills, set thick with dismal evergreens. They passed the great ships of the fleet, and anchored among the other transports towards the head of the harbour. It was not yet free from ice, and the floating masses lay so thick in some parts that the reckless sailors, returning from leave on shore, jumped from one to another to regain their ships. There was a review of troops, and Knox went to see it, but it was over before he reached the place, where he was presently told of a characteristic reply just made by Wolfe to some officers who had apologized for not having taught their men the new exercise. Po-po! New exercise, new fiddlestick! If they are otherwise well disciplined and will fight, that's all I shall require of them. Knox does not record his impressions of his new commander, which must have been disappointing. He called him, afterwards, a British Achilles. But in person, at least, Wolfe bore no likeness to the son of Peleus, for never was the soul of a hero cased in a frame so incongruous. His face, when seen in profile, was singular as that of the great Condé. The forehead and chin receded. The nose, slightly upturned, formed with the other features the point of an obtuse triangle. The mouth was by no means shaped to express resolution, and nothing but the clear, bright, and piercing eye bespoke the spirit within. On his head he wore a black three-cornered hat, his red hair was tied in a queue behind, his narrow shoulders, slender body, and long, thin limbs were cased in a scarlet frock, with broad cuffs and ample skirts that reached the knee, while on his left arm he wore a band of crepe in mourning for his father, of whose death he had heard a few days before. James Wolfe was in his thirty-third year. His father was an officer of distinction, Major General Edward Wolfe, and he himself, a delicate and sensitive child, 
but an impetuous and somewhat headstrong youth had served the king since the age of fifteen from childhood he had dreamed of the army and the wars at sixteen he was in flanders adjutant of his regiment discharging the duties of the post in a way that gained him early promotion and along with a painstaking assiduity showing a precocious faculty for commanding men he passed with credit through several campaigns took part in the victory of dettingen and then went to scotland to fight at culloden next we find him at stirling perth and glasgow always ardent and always diligent constant in military duty and giving his spare hours to mathematics and latin he presently fell in love and being disappointed plunged into a variety of dissipations contrary to his usual habits which were far above the standard of that profligate time at twenty-three he was a lieutenant-colonel commanding his regiment in the then dirty and barbarous town of inverness amid a disaffected and turbulent population whom it was his duty to keep in order a difficult task which he accomplished so well as to gain the special commendation of the king and even the good will of the highlanders themselves he was five years among these northern hills battling with ill health and restless under the intellectual barrenness of his surroundings he felt his position to be in no way salutary and wrote to his mother the fear of becoming a mere ruffian and of imbibing the tyrannical principles of an absolute commander or giving way insensibly to the temptations of power till i become proud insolent and intolerable these considerations will make me wish to leave the regiment before next winter that by frequenting men above myself i may know my true condition and by discoursing with the other sex may learn some civility and mildness of carriage he got leave of absence and spent six months in paris where he was presented at court and saw much of the best society this did not prevent him from working hard to perfect himself in french as well as in horsemanship fencing dancing and other accomplishments and from earnestly seeking an opportunity to study the various armies of europe in this he was thwarted by the stupidity and prejudice of the commander-in-chief and he made what amends he could by extensive reading in all that bore on military matters his martial instincts were balanced by strong domestic inclinations he was fond of children and after his disappointment in love used to say that they were the only true inducement to marriage he was a most dutiful son and wrote continually to both his parents sometimes he would philosophize on the good and ill of life sometimes he held questionings with his conscience and once he wrote to his mother in a strain of self-accusation 
not to be expected from a bold and determined soldier his nature was a compound of tenderness and fire which last sometimes showed itself in sharp and unpleasant flashes his excitable temper was capable almost of fierceness and he could now and then be needlessly stern but towards his father mother and friends he was a model of steady affection he made friends readily and kept them and was usually a pleasant companion though subject to sallies of imperious irritability which occasionally broke through his strong sense of good breeding for this his susceptible constitution was largely answerable for he was a living barometer and his spirits rose and fell with every change of weather in spite of his impatient outbursts the officers whom he had commanded remained attached to him for life and in spite of his rigorous discipline he was beloved by his soldiers to whose comfort he was always attentive frankness directness essential good feeling and a high integrity atoned for all his faults in his own view as expressed to his mother he was a person of very moderate abilities aided by more than usual diligence but this modest judgment of himself by no means deprived him of self-confidence nor in time of need of self-assertion he delighted in every kind of hardihood and in his contempt for effeminacy once said to his mother better be a savage of some use than a gentle amorous puppy obnoxious to all the world he was far from despising fame but the controlling principles of his life were duty to his country and his profession loyalty to the king and fidelity to his own ideal of the perfect soldier to the parent who was the confidant of his most intimate thoughts he said all that i wish for myself is that i may at all times be ready and firm to meet the fate we cannot shun and to die gracefully and properly when the hour comes never was wish more signally fulfilled again he tells her my utmost desire and ambition is to look steadily upon danger and his desire was accomplished his intrepidity was complete no form of death had power to daunt him once and again when bound on some deadly enterprise of war he calmly counts the chances whether or not he can compel his feeble body to bear him on till the work is done a frame so delicately strung could not have been insensible to danger but forgetfulness of self and the absorption of every faculty in the object before him shut out the sense of fear he seems always to have been at his best in the thick of battle most complete in his mastery over himself and over others
but it is in the intimacies of domestic life that one sees him most closely and especially in his letters to his mother from whom he inherited his frail constitution without the beauty that distinguished her the greatest happiness that i wish for here is to see you happy if you stay much at home i will come and shut myself up with you for three weeks or a month and play at piquet from morning till night and you shall laugh at my short red hair as much as you please the playing at piquet was a sacrifice to filial attachment for the mother loved cards and the son did not don't trouble yourself about my room or my bedclothes too much care and delicacy at this time would enervate me and complete the destruction of a tottering constitution such as it is it must serve me now and i'll make the best use of it while it holds at the beginning of the war his father tried to dissuade him from offering his services on board the fleet and he replied in a letter to mrs wolfe it is no time to think of what is convenient or agreeable that service is certainly the best in which we are the most useful for my part i am determined never to give myself a moment's concern about the nature of the duty which his majesty is pleased to order us upon it will be a sufficient comfort to you too as far as my person is concerned at least it will be a reasonable consolation to reflect that the power which has hitherto preserved me may if it be his pleasure continue to do so if not that it is but a few days or a few years more or less and that those who perish in their duty and in the service of their country die honourably then he proceeds to give particular directions about his numerous dogs for the welfare of which in his absence he provides with anxious solicitude especially for my friend caesar who has great merit and much good humour after the unfortunate expedition against rochefort when the board of general officers appointed to inquire into the affair were passing the highest encomiums upon his conduct his parents were at bath and he took possession of their house at blackheath whence he wrote to his mother i lie in your chamber dress in the general's little parlour and dine where you did the most perceptible difference and change of affairs exclusive of the bad table i keep is the number of dogs in the yard but by coaxing ball his father's dog and rubbing his back with my stick i have reconciled him with the new ones and put them in some measure under his protection when about to sail on the expedition against louisbourg he was anxious for his parents and wrote to his uncle major wolfe at dublin i trust you will give the best advice to my mother and such assistance if it should be wanted as the distance between you will permit 
I mention this because the general seems to decline apace, and narrowly escaped being carried off in the spring. She, poor woman, is in a bad state of health, and needs the care of some friendly hand. She has long and painful fits of illness, which by succession and inheritance are likely to devolve on me, since I feel the early symptoms of them. Of his friends, Guy Carleton, afterwards Lord Dorchester, and George Ward, the companion of his boyhood, he also asks help for his mother in his absence. His part in the taking of Louisbourg greatly increased his reputation. After his return he went to Bath to recruit his health, and it seems to have been here that he wooed and won Miss Catherine Lowther, daughter of an ex-governor of Barbados, and sister of the future Lord Lonsdale. A betrothal took place, and Wolfe wore her portrait till the night before his death. It was a little before this engagement that he wrote to his friend, Lieutenant Colonel Rickson, I have this day signified to Mr. Pitt that he may dispose of my slight carcass as he pleases, and that I am ready for any undertaking within the compass of my skill and cunning. I am in a very bad condition both with the gravel and rheumatism, but I had much rather die than decline any kind of service that offers. If I had followed my own taste, it would lead me into Germany. However, it is not our part to choose, but to obey. My opinion is that I shall join the army in America. Pitt chose him to command the expedition, then fitting out against Quebec, made him a major general, though to avoid giving offence to older officers, he was to hold that rank in America alone, and permitted him to choose his own staff. Appointments made for merit, and not through routine and patronage, shocked the Duke of Newcastle, to whom a man like Wolfe was a hopeless enigma, and he told George the Second that Pitt's new general was mad. Mad is he, returned the old king. Then I hope he will bite some others of my generals. At the end of January the fleet was almost ready, and Wolfe wrote to his uncle Walter, I am to act a greater part in this business than I wished. The backwardness of some of the older officers has in some measure forced the government to come down so low. I shall do my best and leave the rest to fortune, as perforce we must when there are not the most commanding abilities. We expect to sail in about three weeks. A London life and little exercise disagrees entirely with me, but the sea still more. If I have health and constitution enough for the campaign, I shall think myself a lucky man. What happens afterwards is of no great consequence. He sent to his mother an affectionate letter of farewell, went to Spithead, embarked with Admiral Saunders in the ship Neptune, 
and set sail on the 17th of February. In a few hours the whole squadron was at sea. The transports, the frigates, and the great line of battleships, with their ponderous armament and their freight of rude humanity, armed and trained for destruction, while on the heaving deck of the Neptune, wretched with seasickness and racked with pain, stood the gallant invalid who was master of it all. The fleet consisted of twenty-two ships of the line, with frigates, sloops of war, and a great number of transports. When Admiral Saunders arrived with his squadron off Louisbourg, he found the entrance blocked by ice, and was forced to seek harbourage at Halifax. The squadron of Admiral Holmes, which had sailed a few days earlier, proceeded to New York to take on board troops destined for the expedition, while the squadron of Admiral Durell steered for the St. Lawrence to intercept the expected ships from France. In May, the whole fleet, except the ten ships with Durell, was united in the harbour of Louisbourg. Twelve thousand troops were to have been employed for the expedition, but several regiments expected from the West Indies were for some reason countermanded, while the accessions from New York and the Nova Scotia garrisons fell far short of the looked-for numbers. Three weeks before leaving Louisbourg, Wolfe writes to his uncle Walter that he has an army of 9,000 men. The actual number seems to have been somewhat less. Our troops are good, he informs Pitt, and if valor can make amends for the want of numbers, we shall probably succeed. Three brigadiers, all in the early prime of life, held command under him. Monckton, Townsend and Murray. They were all his superiors in birth, and one of them, Townsend, never forgot that he was so. George Townsend, says Walpole, has thrust himself again into the service, and as far as wrong-headedness will go, it is very proper for a hero. The same caustic writer says further that he was of a proud, sullen and contemptuous temper, and that he saw everything in an ill-natured and ridiculous light. Though his perverse and envious disposition made him a difficult colleague, Townsend had both talents and energy, as also had Monckton, the same officer who had commanded at the capture of Beauséjour in 1755. Murray, too, was well matched to the work in hand, in spite of some lingering remains of youthful rashness. On the 6th of June, the last ship of the fleet sailed out of Lewisburg Harbour, the troops cheering and the officers drinking to the toast. British colours on every French fort, port, and garrison in America. The ships that had gone before lay to till the whole fleet was reunited, and then all steered together for the St. Lawrence. From the headland of Cape Egmont, 
the micmac hunter gazing far out over the shimmering sea saw the horizon flecked with their canvas wings as they bore northward on their errand of havoc end of section fifty four